Papermen meet such interesting people. They know the lowdown, now it can be told. I'll tell you quite reliably off the record about some charming people I have known. For I meet politicians and grafters by the score, killers plain and fancy. The Media Project gives you a half hour of commentary and analysis of what is going on in the news media in recent days, and we hope you uh, enjoy it and get something enlightening out of it. I'm Rex Smith of the Upstate American. You can Google it. Formerly editor of the Times Union, here with Judy Patrick, uh, vice president of the New York Press Association and former editor of the Daily Gazette of Schenectady. And Ira Fussfeld, the publisher emeritus of the Kingston Daily Freeman and affiliated publications. And Dr. Alan Shartok, the CEO of Northeast Public Radio, columnist, commentator, etc. You name it, I'm there. All right. Well, since you've got the PhD in political science, talk to us about Donald Trump and the fact that yet again, one more lawsuit brought by Donald Trump against the media has been dismissed. In this case, this is a suit against the New York Times and three of its reporters and his niece, Mary Trump, over an investigation into his tax returns. That has been dismissed now by a judge. So what does it say about our legal system if a former president can't even get to a jury with a case against a newspaper? Well, I think what most of us are going to take from all of this is that it's a spurious claim and that it's not worth an awful lot. And therefore, a judge in his infinite judge-like wisdom has dismissed it. Right. This was, by the way, about the story in which it went his finances. And he claimed that there was an insidious plot with his estranged niece. But here's something interesting, Ira, that the judge actually even ordered that Trump pay the legal fees. Yeah, I mean, this is Trump's M.O. As we all know, he immediately goes to the courts or threatens to go to the courts, not just for journalism, but for other issues. Uh, and uh, more often than not, the record will show that the courts throws these cases out or he eventually drops the, the cases. And, uh, you know, he's trying to scare people and he's crying wolf virtually all of the time. And guess it'll be interesting to see whether he, in fact, does pay the fees that he's supposed to be paying. Because he's not only supposed to be paying the Times, but to the reporters who were sued individually. You know, Ira, the more you complain, the more you sue, the more you yell, the less likely it is that the cumulative effect won't be that people will start to dismiss you. I think the more he threatens to sue and the more often than not when their cases are thrown out, it defeats his purpose, which is to scare people and to inject a chilling effect. And there is a chilling effect, but at some point in time, people are going to say he's just the guy who cried wolf and it's not working. It's sort of a two-year-old, yeah. uh, you know, banging your feet on the floor right. and saying, I want, I want, I want, and it doesn't work. But let me ask you, Judy, if you were running a newsroom and you saw that this had happened, that is another lawsuit, would it give you more confidence to go forward with a story? Does a judgment like this at all affirm a news organization's aggressive approach? Well, it's definitely nice to see, but you have to prevail in order to get the attorney's fees reimbursed, and that doesn't always happen, or you get it. You have to really prevail for the judge to decide to award attorney's fees. And Attorney's fees can be very expensive. I mean, it's nice to see the New York Times, a very powerful, very well-financed institution, be able to sustain itself and defend itself against these kinds of nuisance lawsuits. But also, the time was involved. And we often talk about the fact that there's libel insurance to back you up when you go to court in these kind of cases. But that doesn't take into account the time that the editors, the reporters, the whole institution has to spend giving depositions it erodes your ability to do your job. These reporters, the amount of time they spent on this case was time they 
they weren't able to devote to tracking down other elements of Donald Trump's finances. So these cases are nuisances, but he does this. It's almost like a coach who keeps yelling at a referee during a basketball game. And one of the reasons they do it is because they want to make sure the next call goes in their favor. I think this is one of Trump's strategies. It was a clear-cut case, slam dunk. Of course, they had a right to pursue these stories. I don't know how it got as far as it did. It won the uh, Pulitzer Prize for explanatory reporting in 2019, by the way, this series that revealed, you may remember, that the man who claimed to be a self-made billionaire had actually got where he was because of he, he somewhat cheated his dad out of 400 and some million dollars. And that's a lot. That's a pretty decent amount, yeah. You know, one of the tenets of his rise to political power was the fact that average Americans looked at him as a self-made billionaire when, in fact, he wasn't. And these stories proved that he wasn't. So he was a lawyer. Yeah, that, that is... <laughs> that's a different way of saying it. Well, that being the case, so that takes us to our second Donald Trump story of the day with apologies to listeners who say, you know, you and the media are empowering him by talking about him, but he is by far the leading Republican presidential candidate. He's the guy who is likely to get, at this moment, the Republican nomination. Absolutely. So it is appropriate to talk to him or... Is it? Here's a legitimate question that some people are debating. CNN and Donald Trump are going to have a town hall. That is, there's going to be a conversation with Donald Trump in front of an audience of people who are enrolled Republicans or who say they're going to vote in the Republican primary. And CNN is going to air it with one of their former White House correspondents as the person moderating. Should that be the case? Should CNN host a Donald Trump town hall? I think so. I mean, I think that the more information that people get, the more they can make up their own minds as to whether or not Donald Trump, for example, is a spurious character, which I happen to believe. So I think the more that's out there, the better off we are. There may be others like Judy, for example, who may disagree with that. I absolutely disagree. No, no, no. Why did I know that? No, 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 no. Didn't we learn anything the last time around? A live form in which he gets to say whatever he wants. I'd almost be inclined to say, okay, if it was taped and edited. We're thinking that Caitlin Collins, who used to cover the White House for CNN, that she's going to be able to hold her own against her. Haven't we learned that lesson? Chris Wallace didn't do it. I mean, moderator after moderator have failed in this. Remember him you know, marauding around the stage when he was debating Hillary Clinton? This kind of form works for him. Nobody's going to make it not work for him. And for CNN to give him this platform at this time, it's not even like we're in the middle of a presidential campaign. We're not in the middle of a presidential campaign. It's a whole year away. I accuse you of being a censorer. A censorer. That's what editors do. It's not a censor. I mean, he, he can get up and say whatever he wants, but it's CNN's prerogative. They need to edit it. Tape it. And then if they can edit in, uh, fact explain, checking. yeah, fact checking. Put in I'm fact okay checking. with that. What do you uh, think? I, ju- I just think I feel strongly both ways, as they say. <laughs> CNN, part of their mission, as with the all journalism outlets, is to get information for their viewers and their readers. In the case of a town hall format, if CNN plans on having town hall formats with all of the reputable candidates, then Trump is one of them, and he should be allowed to have a town hall format as well. However, and it's a big however, and Judy mentioned it, the uh, veracity of this whole thing is hinging on the moderator, Caitlin Collins. If Trump starts viewing off information that is clearly incorrect or lies, she's going to have to call him on it. If she just gives him the microphone for an hour, 
that it's going to be a pep rally. And in that case, it's a waste of our time and it's a disservice to the profession. But well, Ira Fussell, it does sound like you are expecting something less than great coming from the moderator. I don't know her work well enough. I know she was a White House correspondent. I also know she broke into the business working for the Daily Caller, which was Tucker Carlson's mm -hmm. original platform. I don't know if she's up to it, but others have tried and failed. Let's see how she'll do. I, I tell you, I feel a lot better of sitting right next to her at the table was this guy, Daniel Dale, who is, in <laughs> fact, their fact checker and who could immediately say, no, this was wrong, this was wrong. Well, she'll have to do her homework, but the difficulty, imagine how hard it's going to be in front of a live audience that is going to be pro-Trump when you consider that probably four in ten, isn't it, Republican voters nationwide have already said, yes, Donald Trump is the person we want compared to, say, 20 percent who who are supporting sure. Ron DeSantis. The notion that this audience is going to be so aggressively supporting Donald Trump and probably wanting to shout her down whenever she interjects, I think it could be a really ugly scene, frankly. So if you're CNN and you, in fact, do plan a series of town halls with all the candidates, can you not have one with Trump? I know. I think you have to. But this is the failure of cable television as a medium because you know this is going to be good television. That is, it's going to be filled with conflict and it's going to be lively and entertaining. And that's not really great journalism. It is entertainment, infotainment, let's say. Yeah, that's well, that's an interesting sort of dichotomy that you've raised here between what's entertaining and what's informative. And I don't know if, well, put it a different way, you have the right to make that decision. Well, that's one of the great things, as Judy was pointing out, that is our job, is to make the decision as to what best serves the needs of the community. And if you think that the community is best served by thoughtful presentations that explain candidates' positions that help people make a decision about who to vote for, then a show in which the former president gets to spout the lies that he does constantly spout. I don't know that that's really the most responsible thing that they can do, but I don't see how they can avoid doing it. Yes, and how do you know that they're lies? That's the interesting thing. Uh, you know they're lies. I think they're lies. Nevertheless, somehow he got where he is, and somebody put him there. That's something we discussed years ago before Trump. Any number of times on this program was the reluctance for journalists to use the word lie. Just for the way you asked that question is, how do you know it's a lie? But it has evolved, and Trump has pushed it to the point where we know he's lying, and you just say it's lying. Well, you never used to see the word lie in a story before. Well, what do you make of that? I make of it that it was hard to ignore the kinds of stuff that Trump was spewing and continues to spew and to determine it's anything else but a lie. I mean, you, I just saw one last night where Trump, not recently, but they were going over a history and it said he called John McCain a loser. Mm -hmm. And he then subsequently, years later, said, I never called him a loser. Well, we had proof he called him a loser. Is he just forgetful or is he lying? Well, that kind of thing is not unusual. We used to have to do that with Mario Cuomo, where he would say, well, I didn't say that, and you would end up, you know, I remember that better than anyone. So was he a liar in the Trump mold? Not in the Trump mold. No, no. What's the difference there, Rex? Well, <laughs> degree, <laughs> frequency. I mean, Trump's 30,000 lies during his tenure as president by the Washington Post's fact-checking team. Well, that's the Washington Post on Trump. We have to suspect them somewhat, don't we? No, we don't. No. I think that is part of the Republican propaganda, is saying that the these legitimate journalists at the Washington Post who 
thoroughly check out things that it is saying, well, we got to be fair because the Washington Post is liberal. It's not. The journalists on the Washington Post are thoughtful, careful reporters. They're not out to get anybody. Wait, wait, wait. wait. I have to get the wax out of my ears. Are you telling me <laughs> Are you telling me that the Washington Post isn't a liberal institution that, you know, promotes, you know, liberal thought? Correct. Wow, that's incredible because I don't agree with you. I'm telling you that the Washington Post is filled with thoughtful journalists and reporters who report facts and truth and do their best. I don't know if they're liberal or conservative. They're journalists. Yes, you know whether they're liberal or conservative. <laughs> well, we know what their editorial page is, but we don't, I don't believe we know what their reporters are. Wait, this is so interesting, and I think you've raised something very important here, Ira. Are you telling me that the editorial columns, in other words, what's written in the paper, is not somewhat reflective of the editorial policy of the paper? Well, you've tried that trick on me a number of times over the years, and the answer then and now is the same. There is a separation between the opinion page and the newsroom. You mean there should be a separation, don't you? you? And I would say, particularly at larger papers where the firewall is bigger and stronger, there is a separation. You know, people often ask me, what's Alan Shartok really like? Really like. Uh, and, and I say, you know, the only problem is that I've been doing this show for almost 30 years. The man is a is slow... Is that true? He's a slow learner. He's a... <laughs> I can't tell you how many times she and I have had this discussion here and in classrooms, and the answer, my answer is always the same. But you perk up when I make that argument. Well, or well as Jack, as Jack well, Benny would say, well. Well, so if we could get back to CNN because they are trying to revive their primetime ratings because they've been in a slump um, for the last six months or so. So this is an effort to do that. They're justifying Trump by saying he's the leading Republican candidate at this point. But if they really cared about informing the people, they would have Nikki Haley on. She's also a Republican candidate. Asa you don't think they intend to do that? They haven't announced. Oh, they will, that. though, but it's not going to get the ratings, you know. But this is a actually this is smart for CNN to do it at this point because they have an opening. And that is the Fox ratings are so far down at 8 p.m. Eastern because Tucker Carlson is gone. So they have an opportunity to slip in and get some viewers, so, right? So, while you raise that very interesting point, why are the ratings down now that Tucker Carlson is gone? Well, because he was he is so much the favorite of the right wing viewers, the old right wing viewers who make up the Fox audience, and they're going to further right venues like Newsmax. Yeah, but the ratings at Fox since Tucker Carlson was fired, it's very interesting what's happening there because I think the prevailing wisdom was Fox will survive and then some. They always have people have left and others have come in. The drop in the Tucker Carlson hour has been precipitous. You're talking about 50% drop in ratings. Can they climb back from that? Who's going to be the next Tucker Carlson? Whomever they anoint. You know, Tucker Carlson He'll wasn't be, who he so was. So you think that the current rating slump is not going to be sustained, that they will come back? And I worry that they will create someone who is even more divisive. Yeah. Because even, it works. Because it works. Yeah. And it is entertainment. You know, it was what was foreseen in broadcast. Wasn't that the uh, movie that had faded away 30 years ago? No, you're thinking broadcast news was Holly Hunter. Yeah. Right? Oh, yeah. I can't take it. You got it. Yeah. I right. just can't take it. Right? <laughs> Something like you that. Know, you and know, I've been that, watching Newsmax again, so you guys don't have to. Thank and, you. and the drumbeat there is that Fox is moving towards 
boring and the middle and uninteresting. That's often the cryon at the bottom of the page. Newsmax is trying to capitalize on this and draw those viewers that love Tucker Carlson and keep them. They almost seem to be wanting to get Tucker Carlson, too, but he may be under some restrictions covering his contract. You know, there's also an incestuous thing going on here. Incestuous. Yes, you've got Chris Cuomo, who is unceremoniously fired by CNN, now has his own program on another channel. I think it's called One Nation, but I'm not 100% sure. Who has shown up on Chris Cuomo's program frequently recently? Bill O'Reilly. Oh, also. So he's also uh, a great uh, Chris Cuomo trying to grab some ratings, too. Right. Well, part of the deal is you always try to grab some ratings if you can. Yeah, but I you're mean, putting on the air somebody who was fired for good reason, and you're you're elevating his status again. You're, you're trying to help him rehabilitate. When the difficulty, you say your, what do you mean your? Well, your analysis, Dr. Shartok, is what they're going for here. Because when you say, well, the Washington Post is a liberal publication, it's because— Which it is. Well, no, sir. Oh, come on. It's because you're looking at it. People are equating what goes on at Fox News or Newsmax with what goes on at a legitimate news organization. And those TV programmers have no compunction about putting on stuff that isn't really well reported, that isn't true, in fact, as the Dominion lawsuit showed. That is a different field of work from what journalists do. They're just going for the ratings. Do you agree with that, Judy? Yeah, I totally agree that what they're doing is entertainment. And I think it was used as a defense in one of the lawsuits against Fox a year or so ago that people weren't intended to really believe that this was true, that this was just, you know, fun. Sometimes it reminds me of the old shock jock radio shows where, you know, they would just go on and tell jokes and say crazy things and be outrageous. And they knew it was just for entertainment. The problem is a lot of people in the audience didn't realize this was just for fun. So what's the fix on that if a lot of people don't recognize it? Media literacy? It sounds yeah. boring. Yeah. Sorry. <laughs> you know, it's really true, but I don't know how you get that across. And here comes artificial intelligence galloping in, which is going to create more untrue images. It's going to actually make it harder to distinguish what's real from what's not. And I'm sure you're going to have AI-generated content on some of these cable channels where the producers will not be checking to see if it's real, and it will be aired, and people will begin to believe it. So we are going to be falling further into the abyss of distrust created by untruth. And I don't know how you sustain a society in that kind of situation. So, Rex, is it the producer's job? Do you figure all of that out? Yes, though the individual show producers and the segment producers and the executive producers take their cues from the top. That is why Rupert Murdoch gets my vote for worst living human, perhaps second to Vladimir Putin. But because it is Rupert Murdoch who set the course for this kind of pox on American journalism, and the producers just follow what he allows. Well, you know, there's a theory that with Roger Ailes' demise at Fox, he invented Fox News and the format that... That they currently have, but he apparently had the ability to be a strong leader of that organization and would rein in people who needed reining in. And since his A, departure because of sexual harassment issues, and B, his subsequent death, he's not around to do that anymore. Nobody has filled that void at Fox. So but they're, it, all, they're it's all going the subsequent, their own way. It's subsequent death that really did him in. As Yogi Berra <laughs> used to say, so-and-so is dead at the present time. <laughs> right, but the upper management just can't throw their hands up and say, oh, there's nothing we can do. It's AI. How are you going to tell? What they got to do is devise systems that will verify what's true and what's not. And it's possible if AI can create a fake Donald Trump speech saying certain things, then 
we need to devise mechanisms that identify it and give the stamp of approval to things that are true and maybe the stamp of untruth to those that are not. So, Judy, what do you got in mind? Technology. Technology. They can make AI. They can make some sort of certification. I would think that something has been vetted and it's true. I think that's what we need going forward. There is research on that. In fact, the University of Albany has research into detection of false images. And it's a whole field across the country, but it isn't quite keeping up with AI's rollout. This is the difficulty. You have to have an aggressive AI lie detection scheme that is as aggressive as the Washington Post fact checkers are about Donald Trump's lies. They can do it in real time. And that is, you're right, that's a technology solution. That's where the merger of technology and journalistic ethics needs to happen. And again, there is some of that research going on. There's a terrific center that is shared by Stanford and Columbia universities where they are looking into exactly that issue, where technology and journalism intersect. Uh, It's the Brown Center, named for David Brown, Helen Gurley Brown's husband, who left money for this sort of thing. And that kind of research is going to be where increasingly journalism needs to go. You need to have technology literate journalists or journalistically trained technologists and scientists who can kind of keep the world straight or try to make the world straight. So you're saying that using images as an example, if somebody in his basement in the Midwest decides to post a photo... Why are you picking on... I'll make it the Northeast. (laughs) If they do that, it'll get posted. However things get posted, who's going to police that? Once it's out there, you can't take it back. What news organizations do now, before my paper would run on photograph, we would track down the source, talk to them, and make sure they actually do Yeah, but we're talking about the newspaper... and the, and the traditional journalism. I'm talking about somebody who has the ability to doctor a picture or invent a picture and then throw it up online. Nobody is in between the viewer and the creator. You know, when I was a young intern at the Rapid City Journal in Rapid City, South Dakota, I remember the executive editor showing me something. He was proud of this. He had a photograph that showed three people in front of the U.S. Capitol, and two of them were newsworthy. And he actually had taken his X-Acto knife and cut out the guy in the middle to make a better photograph, you know, get rid of the guy who's kind of taking away from it. And he was pleased about this and said, and you know, at the time, even as a, as a 19-year-old, I remember looking at that and thinking, huh, is that right? And of course it's not right. You know, you, you can't do that kind of thing. But this was a guy who was raised in the journalism of the 1940s before the ethical standards were fully in place. I was born, place. Yeah. That's right. Dr. Shartok was, uh, that's when he was getting his PhD in the 40s. And so it was uh, an important time frame for us to make some judgments here. But anyway, so that kind of manipulation of images and effects is not new. What is new is that it can be done so successfully and instantaneously, and that's what puts the challenge. Well, to the extent that anything is hopeful is that for some reason the AI has been top of mind on a lot of columns have been writing about it. Tom Friedman had one just the other day in The Times. You've got the writers on strike in, in California. One of the big issues there is the is the potential of AI displacing writers. So people are talking about it, but we'll have to see if it's just talk. Well, as long as you've mentioned it, Ira, perhaps you could talk a little bit about how AI is going to replace writers. Well, I wondered that myself, and then I saw a great quote from somebody in the Writers Guild who said, let's just say you took all of the scripts that were written by Nora Ephron, the late Nora Ephron involved with rom-coms and the like, and fed all of her scripts into a computer program 
Could that computer program, when then asked to devise a movie script, digest that norephron content and come up with its own movie script? That's basically what they're saying right now. But here's how AI could help you. We were talking about the town hall with Donald Trump. What if AI instantaneously digested Trump's replies and gave Caitlin Collins, the moderator, the fact check that she needs, and then it just drops it right into her, her IFB, her earpiece, and says, you know, challenge him on that. It's incorrect. Now, there's a way that artificial intelligence can assist legitimate journalism. You just have to have the capacity to do it and the will to say we're going to implement it in this way. <laughs> well, the accusations would be fast and furious, wouldn't they, Rex, that yeah. uh, you were interfering with? Which, again, is why, with Judy's them. point, that you have to go back to media literacy. You have to hope that your audience understands. Yeah, I mean, can you imagine if they, as Judy suggests, they go Trump town hall and they decide to tape it and edit it? Trump will scream from the highest mountain that he got screwed, that they edited it to make him look bad, and it's phony. Well, is there any real proof that they didn't? Well, what you could do is, if you want to have the edited version on the air, make that your primetime report so that most people will see it, and then put on your website, you know, make available to the public the unredacted stuff. Produce it, in other words, so that they can but, see but what's But unredacted there. without any comment? Well, no, you'd, I would, you know, if I were producing it, I would say put some column down next to it on the screen. Here's saying, what he said. Here's, here's what, what he said. Fact check. You'd have a little flashing light that says, lie, lie. <laughs> but you can bet that, that Trump insisted that it be live, and that was probably the condition for him agreeing to do this oh, that's because right. he knows that that is his bailiwick. And he is counting, I bet, on that live audience also being on his side more than on the side of the uh, enemies of the people uh, right. as in the media. To which point, by the way, just one thing we need to make a point about. There was a survey by Pew. You, you. Thank you. Nearly 12,000 working U.S. journalists who say that 57% they are extremely or very concerned about possible restrictions on press freedom. There is some serious matter about this. If you have somebody like Ron DeSantis, perhaps, moving into the White House, who has made a significant effort to curtail press freedoms in Florida. For example, there was legislation that it looks like the Florida legislature is going to adjourn without passing, but that would have basically challenged the libel standards that have been sustained for 40 years with the Supreme Court. That actually could change, and we could have restrictions on press freedom in America of that sort. So, Well, isn't there a possibility always that there will be people who are going to try to restrict the press, its access, and its veracity as we go along? I think that's true. And it's why we have programs like this, folks, to help with Yeah, the, we'll uh, make a difference. Well, it helps the, the news literacy of our audience. The show anyway. ought to be an hour. There we go. <laughs> Maybe an hour and a half. Oh, boy. With that, we are at the end of another media project. No. Yeah, it's true. It's true. Alan Shartok and Ira Fussfeld and Judy Patrick and I'm Rex Smith. With gratitude to our producer, David Gustina, for uh, hauling us all together and making us sound good. And to you folks for listening to us each week here on the Media Project. That went fast. They've got a people's fight to wage. Ting-a-ling-a-ling, newspaper guild. Got a free new world to build. Meet the people, that's a thrill. All together fits the bill. Oh, newspaper men are such interesting people. The Media Project is a national production of WAMC Northeast Public Radio. Our executive producer is Alan Chartong. This week's projectors include WAMC's Alan Chartong, former Times Union editor and current Substack columnist of the Upstate American, Rex Smith. Judy Patrick, former editor of the Daily Gazette and vice president for editorial development for the New York Press Association. And Daily Freeman publisher emeritus, Ira Fussfeld. 
You can listen to The Media Project anytime at wamcpodcast.org or anywhere you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening. It could be prostitution, I don't know. Ting-a-ling-a-ling, circulation, ting-a-ling-a-ling, advertising, get those readers, get that payoff. What a headache, what a mess. Oh, publishers are such interesting people. Let's give free cheers for freedom of the press. <laughs>